nursing industry is one of the fastest growing career forces in the world today. There are so many issues in the healthcare field these days relating to nurses that simply are not discussed in the media. Welcome to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with Leanne Meyer. Our program will help you with the most relevant information if you're in the nursing field or are planning to enter the industry. Now, here is your host, Leanne Meyer. Welcome back to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing. And this is Leanne. I'm here today. We're going to be talking about Alzheimer's and some of the things that can be used, uh, activities and games that can be utilized uh, to be able to um, uh, work with Alzheimer's patients to give them a a level of quality of life that they might not have had otherwise. Um, When I think about Alzheimer's, I think about for baby boomers all over the country and probably all over the world, the A word, Alzheimer's, has become as scary as the C word for cancer has been for centuries. What is different now, after much research and everyday interactions with these patients, mainly that's what we're going to talk about today. And uh, I have two experts who have been working in the field for a long time and learning a lot, and more importantly, teaching and training a lot. So uh, one of the things that actually started this particular topic for me was uh, finding uh, an organization that made what they called Brainy Day Activities. And um, starting to get connected with them, I started to learn more about my two guests. So um, I want to have you welcome uh, with me my two guests, Jeannie Flossie and Lynn Hilgenberg. So Jeannie, could you tell us a little bit about how you became a nurse and how you got uh, involved in this uh, area of nursing? It was, uh, seems like a hundred years ago. Um, when I was 17, I thought I wanted to be a nurse, and so I went to work in a nursing home in 1971. Uh, I went to uh, become a nurse's aide, and uh, it was the summer between my junior and senior year of high school to try that out, and uh, I started meeting those uh, elderly people, and I fell in love. Um, <laughs> it was uh, it was. Uh, so interesting for a very, very young person to um, be exposed to the elderly. I felt like I had to slow up so much and slow down. That was my first lesson they taught me. Um, But uh, I came across in my first few years of nursing a friend of mine named Mary Meeker. Um, She was a nurse, and she came to me. We We had both been... Uh, nurses for three or four years, and she told me uh, that her mother um, couldn't remember what she was doing and was losing ground with her beauty shops that she owned and operated, and uh, could I help her? And I said, well, I don't know how I can help you. Her mother was only 42 at the time, and it took about three years and many doctors um, actually to get to the right diagnosis at the University Hospital in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, and the Alzheimer's Association was just coming on the scene. There was no chapter yet established in the Akron, Ohio area. Um, so we met the one person who was working out of her house <laughs> uh, with a telephone and helped her to build it. Um, we went 
to the library and read everything there was to read about Alzheimer's in a single afternoon at that time. And we started doing uh, public education because, of course, we were the experts. Um, <laughs> and we started inviting doctors and lawyers and nursing home administrators uh, to build a board and did fundraising and advocacy and worked on the Pepper Bill. Believe it or not, a lot of people still don't know that there is a spousal impoverishment bill that protects families, spouses of those with dementia because it's such a, a disease that lasts for so many years that they can become impoverished, and there are ways around that now because of that law. Um, but we wrote newsletters, begged, borrowed, and stole for postage, and um, began helping to build that, helping my girlfriend and seeing her mother through this disease was my beginning. All right. Thank you so much. <clears throat> and Lynn, um, I know that you have a social work background. Can you tell us about um, how you got connected to um, to your, your love for social work and then how you got to this point of working with Alzheimer's? Oh, yes. Uh, well, initially, I began as a child advocate for the state of South Dakota dealing with families in crisis. And I married a wonderful man who started moving me all over the countryside. So I found <laughs> myself uh, administering and learning uh, medicine and dental care through wonderful doctors that I came to know uh, and worked with for almost 26 years. And then my husband and I, uh, we moved to this Des Moines, Iowa area and have continued to live here since 98, at which point my parents moved from South Dakota during our time here, and it became very obvious to me that my mother was having issues. And I was also an owner of a home care company at the same time that was starting to really delve in to understanding and appreciating dementia for the geriatric population. And I absolutely fell in love with it. I saw the ability to relate and be present and enjoy those with dementias of all types in ways that I was ignorant of prior. Mm-hmm. And uh, through my time in my home care company and with my family, I established the need for people to have better education about this disease. Uh, because I found that so many times with the folks I was working with, it was a fairly new concept. They didn't know how to approach it. They didn't know how to care for it. And I decided that that was going to be a primary focus of mine. So uh, throughout all of my little directions, uh, one thing built on another. And as a result, I opened Daylily four years ago and have been working toward educating and assisting others with a better appreciation for what is really going on with dementia. Thank you both. Um, That has been my experience as I talk to people who have been deeply involved in Alzheimer's is that they got to it through a personal experience that just wedded them to the, the issue and wanting to learn as much as they could and share that with other people. So you fit right into that. So, um, the, the topic of this, I started out talking about um, the, the games and the um, uh, devices and <clears throat> activities that people can do with 
Alzheimer patients. Could you each talk just a little bit about how you got connected to that and then what you've done with it since then, what you feel is important about it? So Jeannie, could you talk first? Well, in my beginnings, there weren't any tools or engagement activities, and um, I I kind of began by engaging people in just a so, what I called a social circle and pulling out items out of a basket and looking at a doll and asking people if they uh, ever had a doll and passing the doll around and let everybody talk about whatever was on their mind about dolls. Um, when I <clears throat> met Jenny uh, uh, Rosen, who introduced me to the... Um, the hippocampus headquarters and the Brainy Day activities, I thought, oh, wow, here is 64, <laughs> 64 activities all hanging on little hangers. We've got balls. We've got uh, shut-the-box games. We've got puzzles that are actually not so complex and all the same color that people can't do them and get frustrated and throw them down because their feelings are hurt or they're feeling uh, overwhelmed with the activity in these these just fit right into here. Put these on the table. Um, let's look at these. Can we put this together? Um, let's play shut the box. And they're also um, safe for those who are less cognitively able and might uh, put the put the dice in their mouth. The dice are too big to choke on or swallow. Um, mm-hmm. Great activity uh, piece to use. And great. then some friends of mine at uh, Akron U. Uh, we're creating um, a game called uh, Memory Magic. It's a tabletop game. Um, there's hand-eye uh, coordination involved. It's ergonomically therapeutic for them and mentally challenging at appropriate levels for success with that game, too, uh, because part of the frustration with cognitive loss is that um, those those things that are typically challenging in a game can cause them to get frustrated, mm-hmm. angry, throw things down and walk away or say, I'm not playing anymore or start to cry. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's important to have those kinds of tools that people have developed out there. And then the, uh, the third thing that I uh, have come across uh, that the Department of Health uh, and the, uh, in, in conjunction with the Ombudsman Program, uh, they developed the Music and Memory Program that I got uh, involved with and wrote policies for and <laughs> instructions and processes and documentation to include music. The little iPod, or I think those are called the little ear pieces that you yes. put in your ears. I'm an old woman. Um, <laughs> And, let, and I have their families download their favorite genre of music, and um, uh, it was a nursing home project, and it really provides uh, them with uh, the enjoyment of music. You know, we all are a throwback to whatever our time was between 15 and 25 um, when mm-hmm. music was imp- most important to us in our lives for most of us teenagers, and we look at, you know, how old they were and what the music was at the time, and it triggers. You know, if you've ever listened to a song and it took you back to a time and a place or a person or an event in your life, that kind of enjoyment. And we, uh, the research they did showed that people were actually animated and singing along or uh, engaging with that music, and that's been another uh, really wonderful and 
uh, new tool to incorporate into memory care that we didn't have in these years gone by. That's great. Lynn, can you um, add to that and then also talk about involving families? You bet. Well, when we owned our home care company, I met Jenny Rosen at that particular time, and she came along across my radar screen as I was putting together a lending library for all of my care partners that were going into the home and assisting family members that had dementia. And so I was putting together all sorts of uh, various varied activities based on interest so that caregivers could come and just check them out of my library. Well, then I had the opportunity to meet Jenny, and I thought, oh, this is even better because now I can, I can add this in, and it gives a number of ways. I think uh, what was most important in my training about the various activities in the lending library that I had for my care partners as well as the activities through Hippocampus uh, or any of these companies that you can become involved with, is the appreciation that the rules of the game don't really matter, that you can adapt the rules or the activity based Mm -hmm. on the person that you're working with. And Mm -hmm. that's uh, probably the most meaningful thing I can say about any of these uh, types of activities that that both of us are sharing with you today is adapting them and not getting caught up with the rules of the game because Mm -hmm. that's where people stumble and struggle. And so this was my first opportunity to illustrate to families and using my care partners a little bit of how we're engaging their loved ones and then they would utilize some of those same things when we were not present in the home. In fact, I found out that a lot of my things in the lending library maybe never made it back, but that was okay because I yeah. knew that it was a successful uh, activity that families are doing with their loved ones. So when I uh, became an executive director for an assisted living dementia unit, which we had two locked units in our particular uh, community, uh, I discovered that one of the mo- one of the most important things I could do was show my family members where this warehouse, so to speak, of activities were so that they could also engage their loved one when they came to visit. An interesting thing that happened with this is that family members were a little cautious about coming to visit because so many times they didn't know what to talk about or do with the person that they loved because maybe some of those old ways of connecting were no longer successful for them. And what I found is by having some of these things available to them, they were able to reconnect in a new and different way with their loved ones. And they tended to come and visit more often, those that Mm -hmm. utilized the activities, and they tended to stay for a longer period of time, which I think all of us on this call today and probably those listening can agree is one of the most important things that we can offer to folks that are dealing with a dementia is the ability to stay connected to people that love them. Yes, absolutely. Um, so true. Before we move on too much, I'd like to just mention that if you are on the uh, Voice America site and my host page, Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, uh, the third portion of where I would normally have a guest is a picture of the Brainy Day Activity Program, 
And also Ginny Rosen, who is running that, um, asked me to let you know that if you're interested in it, um, she would give you a 10% off, uh, $25 off of a $259 uh, product um, just by including the coupon code NURSE, N-U-R-S-E in capitals. And she would be happy to give you a little discount for that. So if you're interested, you've been looking for something, uh, it is uh, apparently a really great product. And and as Lynn was saying, there are other companies, too, that do this. So just know there is help out there and um, look for it. I can give you a website. Okay. Leanne, for the memory magic, I looked it up for our audience. It's www.memorymagic.com. Pretty easy, and that site will show you everything that you need to know about that if you have interest in looking that up. That's fantastic. While we have the time, I also would like to, you know, as I was saying earlier, when we became, I mean, there's always been dementia. We've had that around since the beginning of time and and the beginning of older people. Um, but this more uh, knowledge about it and understanding of what the different types of dementia are and what causes them, etc. So I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the research that you've learned. And um, Jeannie, you talked about the 10 uh, top commonly reported pleasant events for all people. I believe you heard that at a, at a conference. Yes, I went to a conference several years ago where Dr. Logston from University of Washington uh, presented and had done international research on the quality of life. And, uh, of course, I was writing copious notes um, from these researchers, both nationally and internationally, and I was so surprised to hear what the top nine (laughs) quality of life uh, or, well, I should say the research outcomes of, first of all, the four most commonly reported pleasant events are, number one, just to go outside, mm. the outdoors, whether it's sitting and listening to the birds or letting the snow fall on your tongue uh, when you're all bundled up, but going outside. The second is shopping. That blew my mind. I had no idea. Uh, Going shopping and buying things was number two of uh, pleasant events reported uh, around the world. The third was reading, looking at, or listening to stories, and that includes magazines and newspapers. The fourth was listening to music, i.e., the music and memory program and its importance. Uh, The next was Um, Someone having knowledge of them and interest in them. One of the common problems when someone gets debilitated and cognitive loss sets in to the point where they don't know what to say or how to say, they become very quiet and become easily isolated and excluded. So someone speaking to them and taking an interest in them, engaging with them. Laughter and comedy is number six. Socialization and exercise is number seven. Being in a home-like environment. Now, we all know that hospitals have (laughs) historically been sterile, um, and that's a scary place. So a home-like environment that puts them at more ease. And uh, the last was mood enhancements, things that eliminate fear. Um, And you really have to step a moment into their shoes and say, what would be scary in this room uh, to me or in this hall or in this 
nursing facility and try to eliminate fears, any discomfort and pain, and uh, offering some pleasant experiences of some kind, learning how to push happy buttons. That's what I called it. Um, And everybody has different ones. And we have to ask ourselves, you know, if I were cognitively impaired, what comforts me? I like yarn. I crochet. I like uh, books. Um, Just holding a book, even if I can't read it, would be comforting for me. Um, And offering pleasant experiences and unconditional acceptance. Um, It's so easy to be condescending. Okay, we were sitting at the table and I poured my pop on my macaroni and cheese. And somebody goes, oh my God, what a mess. Let me clean this up. And uh, that's, it's hurtful. It hurts their feelings. Their limbic system and emotional intelligence is very much intact. And we lose, uh, we lose in our own reactions to them our sensitivity of how we're making them feel. Yes, we're in a hurry. We're going to clean it up. We've got a hundred things to do. And uh, we're exuding that angst. And our emotions are contagious. Um, and if we're happy and calm and peaceful, we give them a happy, calm, peaceful moment. And if we're not, they are sensing and feeling uh, our, if we're too tired, if we're frustrated. Um, but you can really do anything. Use aromas, uh, something to rummage through, draw, paint, color, uh, clay, Play-Doh, read a story, tell a story, um, get out a deck of cards and play war, um, or just line them up, um, uh, pop in a movie. Uh, and movies are really not very good because they don't maintain the thread of things, but at least it's imagery and something to look at rather than just sitting in a chair and staring. Um, so those are my, uh, my top ten findings on quality of life and some of the ideas that I've come up with over time to help to make life better for those with cognitive loss. Lynn, talk to, talk to us about some of your thoughts and what are some of the interesting things that you've learned? Well, what I've discovered is the importance of appreciating what is the purpose of the activity. You know, why, why do we think it's important? And I almost prefer engagement more than activity personally, but um, what I've discovered is there's six basic things that people are looking for in engagement, uh, that, that being the folks that have cognitive issues. One is to have a sense of control. Um, mm-hmm. Another is to experience success, to feel useful and productive, to express themselves, to have an opportunity to be with others, and to fulfill a spiritual and religious need. Um, most folks still have a need to feel in touch with something uh, bigger than themselves. I find that the types of activities, there's, there's basically four categories. Um, and this would be something, you know, if you, if you follow very many of the dementia specialists, you, you hear this over and over again, but productive activities, things that help give me a sense of value and purpose. I mean, those might be simple things like watering the plants and caring for things in my neighborhood that I'm living in in the, in the long-term care, helping another resident or helping staff members with various things. And then there's leisure activities. You know, are we getting to watch a great entertainer, something that's more passive, 
are we getting to do something that's more active, like playing a game of bags or um, doing some singing or uh, playing some other sport or, or some sort of thing like that? And then there's self-care, uh, the physical part that we hear about frequently, uh, being able to go for a little walk, um, things that help build our strength and balance and, and maintain some of those areas. But also the cognitive piece, um, just as, as she mentioned earlier, some of those matching games, sorting games, things that make us look at our world and utilize some of our motor skills in different ways. Our reminiscences, of, of course, are, are wonderful for group things. And then we can't forget the restorative, the times that we allow them to re-energize. And that might be listening to a reading, walking in a chair, which, of course, is gets right with that saccadic rhythm that we all have a need for. Um, being able to be outside and commune with nature and listening to that quiet neighbor or that quiet music or, you know, getting a foot silk or a foot rub. Those are all things that can help restore us and help us feel even more a part of things. And I think those are those are imperative. And, you know, one more shout out uh, to the music. The beauty that we're seeing in all the neuroscience of music is that different parts of the brain light up if we are listening to music versus if we are singing to the music versus if we are playing an instrument. So we can engage maybe parts of the brain that otherwise would would be dormant or less active by doing that, and I think that's a particularly fascinating thing that we have discovered in our research of activity and engagement. And then finally, understanding that you have different types of personality. You know, uh, you have to know your person. You Mm -hmm. have to know them. Uh, Almost nothing happens with care if you treat everyone like they're sort of a rubber stamp individual. And you have folks that are on the introverted side of things, folks that are a little more extroverted. So your introverts might help you set up for the group events, maybe fold some bulletins or set some papers out or or stand and say hello to people as they walk in. But your extrovert might be sitting right there in the front row ready to dance with the performer. So uh, I think understanding that and providing a flow for their day. Um, I don't know uh, how our other guests feel, but I always feel like some of our best activities and engagement with residents are too Two things. First, it's engaging without a task in mind. Too often when we approach a resident or a a loved one, every time we approach them, we want something from them. We want Mm -hmm. to take them to the table for a meal. We want to change their clothes. We want to give them medicine. We want to put them to bed. We want to take them to the bathroom. We want to shower them. And sometimes we need to reach out and just be with them. And that was the most important lesson my mother taught me when she was hardly using words anymore and I was racing around in her apartment doing all sorts of things and she managed to shout out, stop. And I realized what I was doing and it made Mm -hmm. me take a new approach and realize that sometimes the most important thing we can do is just be with these individuals. I can't think of a better place to stop for a break and um, 
and then we will rejoin. I'm just really thrilled with all the things you're coming up with. Many of them probably we might think of, but when you're in that situation, it's your loved one. It's like your mind goes blank. You know, you can interact with them the way you always have, and you don't know how to interact with them in another way. So um, today's uh, program today is all about Alzheimer's and activities and interactions with people with Alzheimer's and whether that's play or treatment, and it's certainly both. Um, Jeannie Flossie is here. She is a pioneer and advocate in the care of Alzheimer patients. And Lynn Hilgenberg, who is working, lecturing, and teaching the many things that can be done for patients to improve their quality of life. So we will be back in just a few minutes. Thank you for listening. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Now there's a new destination for video content, voiceamerica.tv, just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7, voiceamerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Take us on the go. It's even easier now. The Voice America Talk Radio Network has a mobile app for iOS, Android, or Amazon Kindle. Visit the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play to download the app powered by Aircast. It's free and no registration is necessary. In minutes, you could be enjoying your favorite Voice America Talk Radio host no matter where you are, in the car, out and about, while traveling, or anytime you can't be close to your computer. Catch up on the archives you've missed or discover new shows on the spot. Search Voice America at your favorite app store. If you like what you're hearing on Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, consider supporting the show. In the one year since the show started, we've increased our listening audience by nearly 7,900% and our goal to reach 50 countries and counting. Whether you are looking to reach a regional, national, or worldwide audience, you'll have a competitive advantage by advertising on Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse. It's the perfect platform. Contact senior executive producer Tacey Trump today at 480-294-6421. That's 480-294-6421. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. listening to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. To reach the program today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to leannevoiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse. 
Welcome back. Uh, this is Leanne again. And um, if you are just joining us now and wondering what on earth are we talking about, we're actually talking about um, aspects of uh, play and treatment and uh, how to engage people that have Alzheimer's. Many times we just feel frustrated when we can't interact the way that we always have with that individual. Um, <clears throat> so uh, I'm talking with Jeannie Flossie, who is a pioneer and advocate in the care of Alzheimer patients, and Lynn Hilgenberg, who is working, lecturing, and teaching the many things that can be done for patients to improve their quality of life. So, Jeannie, you were just talking on the break about something you'd like to bring up. Do you want to go ahead and and talk about that? Oh, I just wanted to comment on how much I appreciate what Lynn was saying about uh, allowing them to continue to to contribute. Um, they need to realize that they still have value. Their sense of worth and self-esteem has diminished over time as um, the disease has progressed and they've been aware of their forgetfulness or been the victim of the nonverbal, what in the world are you doing, uh, you know, raised eyebrows and exasperated looks. And uh, that they're affording them the opportunity to continue to contribute with whatever that is, household chores, folding the clothes. Um, that's real valuable stuff that Lynn was talking about. And for nurses, it's a real necessity then um, that we have a thorough social history. When they walk away from that home and they're in our care, we need to have some knowledge of who they were, what their interests were, what they liked, and be able to um, facilitate quality of life through that in the institution or the long-term care or the assisted living setting. I also, if I might uh, jump in here a little bit, I think it's really important for us to continue to appreciate that although their communication pattern with us may change. Their abilities may change. They're still a wonderful, beautiful human being within this uh, body that you're that you're working with. And I think uh, when we're in care or providing care for those that have cognitive decline, I think it's very easy if we're not consciously in tune to uh, begin to treat them as less than the adult that they are. Mm -hmm. Uh, In fact, I think a lot of our staging of dementia does exactly that because it Mm -hmm. compares uh, their abilities to toddlers or to grade schoolers, and I think that's a devastating thing when we allow ourselves to actually function with individuals that have cognitive decline thinking of them as less than the adults that they are. And certainly, as uh, Jeannie mentioned earlier, they are completely in tune with what's going on under the current of your personality. If you're being uh, in any way condescending, uh, they pick up on it. They are very, very alert. Their limbic system is in overdrive. In fact, the amygdala is working fast and furious uh, to determine whether uh, they should be frightened, uh, run away from you, or fight you. And the more we understand that we're signaling ideas and reactions from the very people we're caring for, 
by our own opinions and uh, maybe misplaced attitudes, the better we can give care. Absolutely. I think one of the most common questions I've been asked over the last 35-plus years is, why do Alzheimer's patients get violent? And my answer is always the same. They They are not violent. What they're doing is responding and reacting to um, what's going Mm -hmm. on around them. Um, If someone is demanding and things are overwhelming, um, all the forms of dementia, and there are many different causes and it manifests in very different ways, causes individuals to be uncertain, fearful, anxious, get agitated, and if no one is making them comfortable and it's going from bad to worse and they see those nonverbal communication things, it escalates and turns into their, like like Lynn just said, wanting to run away or uh, the fight-or-flight thing kicks in. Underlying uncertainty Uh Uh is fear, and fear leads to that fight-or-flight, and that aggression then is in response to the situation that's beyond their control. Um, People who are cognitively impaired need calm, comforting, reassurance, and they need their needs satisfied. Um, which leads to Naomi Files validation therapy. Um, Oh, yeah. Well, I I, I do think it is so important for us to appreciate changes in vision and changes in how they're perceiving their atmosphere and their environment so that we can better care. In fact, one of the worst things we do in long-term care is label people. We label them as wanderers. We label them as combatives. And yet I think every single one of us um, would be very annoyed and bothered if people that we weren't sure who they were suddenly touched us or suddenly were, were wanting to, to take us into the bathroom or take us into the shower. I think all of us would have a reaction. And I think to label it as combative, uh, it automatically sets up this attitude that this person's going to be aggressive, and then it changes the way the care partner approaches them from that point on. And I think Absolutely. when you're approached by somebody who's preparing, yeah, if you approach somebody and you're preparing for a fight as you approach them, trust me, you've signaled plenty to that individual. It's amazing what the nonverbal communication is. We learn that in our communication courses, that uh, 90% of our communication is nonverbal. And br- uh, what I've worked very hard to do over the years is to bring awareness to the caregivers that you are bringing a message when you walk in that room and when you approach and when you begin to have a dialogue with a patient who's cognitively impaired, and you have to be aware of what that nonverbal communication is. You could be thinking about the fact that the dog ran away this morning or that you're mad at your next-door neighbor, and that's what you're wearing on your face, but that individual that you're going to interact with is taking that personally. They see that, and they're reading that automatically and immediately. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they think it's you toward them. Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. They're not able to discern because of different forms of brain damage. They, that, uh, that's not working like it used to, and we have to have an awareness. We all learned in nursing school that you leave your emotions and your problems at the door. Well, how many of us really do? 
Um, <laughs> we aren't thinking about it, and we do carry them, but when you're dealing with the cognitively impaired, it's ever more important to do that. Yeah, it occurs to me that this is uh, the kind of things we need to be doing every day with everyone because um, people, whether they have a, a dementia problem or not, are still reading us. And we okay. often do that where we're acting out something or we're uh, uh, expressing something we don't even know we're doing. We think we're perfectly calm and together. And what's coming off of us and energy-wise is uh, harassment or hostile or something along that order. So exactly. I think we could, yeah, I think we could adapt this to everyone. <coughs> One thing I was thinking of oh. is when people yeah. with um, dementia are in whatever realm they're in and they're talking about it, you know, that where's grandma and, and when are we going home and um uh, not indicating that they know where they are. I know so many people think they have to bring that person back to rea- reality or what they think is reality. Oh. What are your thoughts about that and how to oh. deal with those issues? I, I really want to jump in on that, and then uh, then I promise I'll be quiet, Jeannie, and let you have a shot. <laughs> no, you go, girl. I, 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 I tell you what, uh, reality orientation with uh, any of the dementias is just really not a successful option. Um, I'm sure somebody somewhere can cite me an example that is uh, an outlier to that, but I have never seen that be successful, nor do I think getting into a big convoluted lie is successful either. Um, Doesn't mean you can't do little white lies, but I think you have to be really careful in either of those things. But reality orientation absolutely is the least successful method you can utilize with somebody who has a dementia. In fact, what I usually suggest, and I have found this has worked well for me, is I think about what are they communicating to me about what they're saying. You know, when someone says, and this is a frequent one, I want to go home, taking them into their room, showing them their pictures, showing them their blanket, that's not going to work. What they're communicating to you is what each of us thinks about when we close our eyes and we think about what being home feels like. It isn't the address. It isn't the trinkets. It's about how we feel when we're home. And so if we listen to what's going on with someone that says, I want to go home, we need to take a look and say, are we letting this person feel like I would want to feel? if I were in my home. And if we're not, then it's time to take a step back and make some changes. You're absolutely right, Lynn. I have to chime in here because making a person feel at home is what makes them feel at home. Um, And we've done that. We've gone to people's houses and felt like, well, okay, when can we leave? You're not feeling comfortable there. Um, And... You've gone in other people's houses and put your feet on the glass top table and thought, I could stay here for a week. Um, we, we all know what that is and what it means, and they need that. And when they're talking about going home, our mind should immediately go there. I think one of the, one of the things that we need to hit on is probably the threats to the quality of life for both the caregiver, 
whether it's nurses or Mm -hmm. aides in an institution or whether it's family caregivers, is that there are threats to the quality of life for both. Um, And those threats are uh, uncertainty, uh, the personality and mood changes. And it changes our own mood when we are caring for someone who is cognitively impaired because we're getting frustrated and we've, we've repeated the same thing four times. Um, the lack of information that people have and their, their misinterpretations of what's going on, unrealistic expectations of that individual with cognitive loss. What is the matter with you? Why didn't you do that is what people are immediately thinking, and we have expectations of them that are completely unrealistic for their cognitive loss, and we just haven't really uh, absorbed that yet. There's family conflict mm-hmm. that arises from it all. Um, depression and anxiety and anger and grief and loss of the person that used to be that partner you used to have who used to pay the bills and mow the grass and do these things and those those needs of mine as a caregiver when they're at home the family members uh, they are not that anymore and there there are emotions that crop up with that Um, the statistics on the caregivers um, is that they suffer from two times the number of chronic conditions as people who are not full-time caregivers as far as the family are concerned. The strained spouse mm-hmm. carers have a 63% higher mortality rate. Can you believe that? I mean, those are the, those oh, are the national statistics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they yes, go I've, into I've depression, anxiety, more than fatigue. a few care partners. Yeah. Yeah, um, often uh, uh, the, some of those reports said is that they have wound up in the hospital with fatigue, uh, heart attacks, uh, and died before the patient. Mm-hmm. Most definitely. I think that uh, caring for the care partner is, is a tricky one because so many times where they struggle is the guilt, the guilt over how they're feeling and their lack of connection to the person the way they used to be. I think that was the lesson that my mother taught me and that I have tried ever since to establish with families, and that's that I, want, I still want you to be my daughter. I still I don't want you just to be my caregiver. And too many times, uh, and certainly it had been the case for me, we get so sidetracked uh, when we're family caregivers with uh, running around and being the caregiver that we rob the person that we love and ourselves from the depth of the relationship as the spouse or the daughter or the brother or sister. Uh, I think we, we, completely, we completely lose that in our fight to do things and get things done. And also, then, uh, there's a lot of grief that goes with that. I used to share with with families, you know, I know this is not what you signed up for. This is not what you thought it all meant when you said for better or worse. Um, And I get that. And the guilt over maybe not being able to give the level of care uh, either physically or emotionally, and therefore looking at placement, is particularly difficult for the loved one. Oh, yes. That successful family uh, interventions is such an important part 
they're uh, they've got to deal with uh, the, the the isolation from their friends, family, and normalcy that they used to have. There's problem solving involved, and they're not really taking care of themselves. Um, there's a balancing act: whose needs, how long, <laughs> how much, and learning to let go. I've found that caregivers, mm-hmm. because I, I've been involved in many, many support groups to help families, is that the, the caregivers have done this so long um, and done so much, they don't know when it's time to stop and let someone else help or get respite or make that placement mm-hmm. and begin to reclaim their own lives. Um, because mm-hmm. as this disease progresses... Um, if it is one of uh, one of the Alzheimer's end stage uh, situations, these people become completely bedfast, incontinent. Um, they're dressing, changing, feeding, uh, turning, positioning, setting them up, lying them down, um, and they just continue on. And that is uh, that is a heavy burden. And trying to, I found it difficult trying to give them permission to let someone else step in and help and when the time is right. And that formula is different for everybody. Well, in fact, Jeannie, I don't even know if I can count in my support group experience either the number of times I've been asked by a loved one, how do I know when it's time? You know, that's that's a primary question we get mm-hmm. asked by family members. How, how do I know when it's time? Well, the formula so I, is... As we talk... Uh, <laughs> all very unique and individual to the circumstances of individual people. Mm-hmm. I, I do think that if we want to become better care partners, and I mean as, as family members or as professionals, I think um, the challenge that I certainly hear coming from you, which I'm so excited about, and I hope, I hope people are hearing it from me as well, is that we have to be willing to try something new. You know, we and and not be so fearful about you know trying a new type of engagement or, or trying a new type of of interaction with someone, and be willing to learn something different. I I tell you what, I there's so much new research out there. Now we understand about neuroplasticity, and that was not even talked about 15 years ago. Absolutely. And being willing willing to see it through another person's eyes, you know, have really tuning in to the empathy that we need to have for people that have uh, a, de- a cognitive decline. Because you know what? There's still people that haven't gone anywhere. And the disease doesn't change the fact that we have to have our sense of humanity. And then I think finally the big key, and I'm, I'm anxious to hear what you think, Jeannie, I think the big key is to be willing to fail and try again. You know, because we're yeah. human. So we're, we will screw it up. That just kind of goes with it. Absolutely. We're um, not going to go through a day and not have a challenge. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Right. Exactly. Right. So I'll tell you one thing that the patients over my 40-plus years as a nurse and an aide have taught me, and that is they are living in this moment. The mm-hmm. past is forgotten. The future is not conceivable. It's, they are living in this moment, and we are so busy with what we've got to get done. We have to do this, 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 and this, um, and we're rushing around. We need what they taught me was just sit. It's what you said earlier, Lynn. 
just sit down and look in my eyes, hold my hand, talk to me. If I don't talk back, fine, but they are living in this moment. And whatever we can do to make it look good, sound good, smell good, feel good, is a quality of life. Uh-huh. You know, as I'm listening to you, too, I'm thinking sometimes family members perhaps think those things in their mind, but they don't necessarily say them to their loved one. You know, Mom, I'm just so happy to be here just holding your hand and having these moments together. Um, it just is something so simple, but something we don't actually say. We actually are going to need to stop here Um um, I want to uh, give you each just a minute to maybe what is the, the we, in fact, we just have a couple of minutes. I think I'm going to have to just stop here, and I'm so sorry, because I was hoping um, that we could get much more in, and we, we always uh, include a lot, but it's never enough. So um, I want to thank both of you for being on the show and um, for all of the wisdom that you've shared with us and places they can go and connect. And um, so I really thank you a lot. Well, thank you. Well, thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it. You're so it's welcome. It's a pleasure. Great. One of the things I wanted to do just here at the end is uh, quite a bit different. It's... Um, I just felt like I needed to take a minute to acknowledge another senseless hate crime that was committed this time at a Jewish temple in San Diego. And these incidents are becoming a daily reality around the world and can be chalked up to, at its core, it seems like greed, anger, and ignorance. This one, this particular one hurt me especially deeply because the perpetrator was a nursing student. If we as nurses, who often come to the profession based on the desire to help others, spend our training, we we spend our train learning how to do this in an inclusive and respectful manner to all, if we cannot change the bullying, disrespect, and anger that finds itself showing up at work and in our daily lives, how do we expect people in a general population to learn a better way? I think there's so many nurses, millions of us on the planet, and if each one of us just looked at this as part of our mission in life, to um, step back, take a good hard look at your own personal attitudes, at your behavior, and try to determine, uh, is there really something, we is, is what we're putting out what we really want other people to learn? and to know about, and if we're seeing people in our environment who are struggling, who are angry, who are frustrated, who are whatever, instead of walking away from them, maybe it's similar to this whole thing with Alzheimer's, instead of walking away, maybe what they need is someone to come close and ask them what's going on for them, and to be able to talk it out or work it out or hopefully hear another point of view before they act on whatever it is that's going through their minds. So I just have not said anything about these as they've been happening, but I felt like I had to this time simply because it was a nursing student and that brings it closer to home. So I thank you all for listening and I hope that you will tune in again next week. Um, This is Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing. And this is Leanne Meyer. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. 
you for listening to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse, exploring the world of nursing with your host, Leanne Meyer. Be sure to join us again next Monday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a productive and insightful week.